Welcome to the Zeitgeist 19 curated podcast, exploring the spirit of now through the lens of art and sustainability. Your hosts are Farah Piria and Elizabeth Zhovkova. In the spiral of political-military escalation that has been unfolding before our eyes, creating unthinkable global chaos overnight, we meet Jocelyn Getchen Kastenbaum, a professor, scholar and advocate on human rights, public health and atrocity prevention. We discuss Russia's attack on Ukraine, the war crimes against humanity and the displacement of the vulnerable population. In this vital conversation, Professor Jocelyn takes a closer look at the worrying geopolitical changes, meanwhile sharing her vision for the future of a more peaceful and united world. Thank you so much, Jocelyn, for doing this conversation with us. Uh, we are delighted to have you on Zeitgeist 19. And my first question to you is, your work stands at the intersection of public health and human rights, specifically atrocity prevention, the prevention of genocide, and the protection of vulnerable populations. What is your comment on the Russian invasion into Ukraine? What does this war mean to the whole world? Well, first of all, Farah, thank you so much for having me. And you know, thanks for starting with the easy question. <laughs> um, so uh, to, to really to comment on what is happening now in Ukraine with uh, Russian aggression, we're really in an unprecedented time. And, and when I say that, it's because, you know, Russia's a nuclear power and we haven't really seen this type of clash in recent years, such an illegal act of aggression, uh, whether or not Russia can be uh, held to account for that aggression is another question, but it, it definitely fits uh, the, the, the definition of aggression, this power grab, right, by a powerful nation, uh, a nation, again, that does have nuclear capabilities. And this is in an era where we have the law of the United Nations, the UN Charter, where we are supposed to be holding uh, these political questions in peaceful um, means through international cooperation. And that's not to say that we haven't had violent conflict in the past, but it's really not hyperbole, I think, to say that the world may be on the brink of another world war. I mean, it's it's not unpredictable, this, this violence that we're seeing, because there has been a history, right, with Ukraine and, and recent events over, if you think about the last decade or even maybe the last few decades, um, this country has been a battleground between Russia and Western countries, or the idea of the, of the conflict is this, you know, clash between uh, Western values and, and Russia's declining power or maybe continuing, uh, you know, uh, situation of wanting to, to conquest and, and, and increase power. And, you know, the, the reality um, in all of these types of conflicts is that civilians are caught, caught in the middle of this geopolitical power struggle. It's really civilians who suffer consequences and serve, suffer them in terms of health, mental health and physical health consequences, um, everything that comes out of conflict and forced migration. So for me, in terms of atrocity prevention, the world's leaders really um, haven't been able to prevent this violence from ensuing and from the current conflict situation from happening, but they're 
to me, there's always a place for prevention. And right now, what we need to be focusing on as a global community is how do we mitigate the negative consequences of conflict for Ukrainians. Thank you for your insightful answer, Jocelyn. Now, talking on atrocities more broadly, you have led a fundamental research on persecution as a crime against humanity and early warning risk analysis. How can human rights violations and mass atrocities be prevented? Thanks, Elizabeth. Um, Yeah, so for me, all of the best uh, prevention efforts really require intensive research, monitoring, evaluation, but you really also need locally tailored, locally driven solutions with partners on the ground. I feel like, you know, even a few decades ago, it was really popular in the public health and even the human rights fields to be thinking about, okay, well, how do we scale up and how do we transfer successes in one context to another? And although sometimes those types of, um, you know, solutions are transferable, I think when it comes to mass atrocity prevention, there's so much context specific uh, issues and problems that really we need local solutions. We need the buy-in, we need the you know effort of local populations working together and coming together to drive solutions. And then the global community needs to support that. Um, it really requires that kind of collaboration. And to me, it really, the, the factor that I want to address is to think about how law, right, and specifically human rights law, can be used to identify and to combat the risk factors that we see in atrocity. And that is before certain human rights violations become systemic or widespread and lead to situations of mass violence. So for example, if you're taking the issue of persecution against a minority group based on identity, and let's just use the example of the Rohingya, you know, you want to identify what are the human rights violations you're most concerned about that are perpetrated against identity. That could be uh, racial, ethnic identity, religious identity. It could be sexual minorities, uh, identities like gender uh, identity or sexuality. In many cases, these, you know, risk factors that we see, some of which are uh, in and of themselves human rights violations, they include, but they aren't limited necessarily to discrimination, denial of freedom of religion or belief, denial of nationality rights, of citizenship, including actual efforts to denationalize populations, labor, other forms of exploitation, criminalization of identity, dangerous speech, dangerous rhetoric. And on social media, you see this as well, and it's increasingly a problem that we need to address excessive police action, use of force, detention, those types of actions. If you're thinking about specific populations like the Rohingya, the alarm bells were really sounding. And we were thinking about this from an atrocity prevention perspective decades ago when there were changes to the citizenship laws that denied citizenship rights based on ethnicity. When we start to see that, right, when you start to see citizenship as you know, the right to have rights, really, and that denial of citizenship and nationality rights as really not being able to work, to go to school, to be able to vote, to you know be able to hold office. All of those types of denials become denials against the group. And that severe 
deprivation, right, of fundamental human rights, that's the definition of persecution when it's on those protected status like ethnicity or race or religion. And when we see that, we want to combat those harms at that stage, right? I mean, even when we're seeing the denial of all of these rights, it's already an international crime. It's already persecution. And that can be addressed as a crime against humanity. But if we think about these particular human rights violations as upstream, right, before you see the um, you know, all out mass violence that you're seeing today against the Rohingya, we have to find ways, right, to address and combat those human rights violations when there are actual ways to address it through law, when we can think about doing it through peaceful means and not necessarily be requesting the United Nations to come with blue helmets and boots on the ground. That's when we already feel like, you know, it's, it's, mass violence and we're mitigating disaster instead of really um, prevention. That said, always ability to prevent further harm, right? But it's much more difficult. It's more costly. It requires political solutions. It requires lots of global, you know, international collaboration and action. So um, if we can really think about upstream, those human rights violations that we see, the denial, for example, in this case of citizenship and nationality rights, why can't we address them then? And you know, oftentimes countries, states will use that defense of sovereignty and state sovereignty and claiming that they are sovereign and that they can make these decisions, but we have to really find ways of overcoming that defense and find ways of working with the populations that are on the ground that are affected by these uh, particular human rights violations, work with them because it's not a denial of sovereignty for individuals within the country to fight against these uh, human rights violations that are happening in their own countries. So that's, that's what I would say um, are really important ways that we can think about prevention and think about ways that are addressing atrocity crimes before we see mass violence. I think about atrocities as processes, right? Not necessarily events. It's not like, you know, the Rohingya forced migration genocide just happened one day. Yes, we as a world community stopped when the migration flows were happening and watched, but the process happened over decades, over a long time of denial of fundamental human rights. Thank you, Jocelyn. Going back to my first question, if we compare the exodus of Ukrainian migrants with people fleeing conflicts in Africa and the Middle East to enter European countries, depending on which war a person is fleeing, the welcome might be very different. How has your advocacy work affected your thinking about refugee assistance and its chronical underfunding? How can we sustain a large humanitarian response? Yeah, well, this is a really complex and, and difficult question on one hand, and then it's also the easiest, most simple question on another. So first of all, I actually question whether there is a crisis of migration, right? People are not illegal. People should not be considered to be illegal. We have really a crisis of late stage capitalism and continued settler colonialism, colonial violence against particular populations. We have a racism crisis, right? And a white supremacy problem. And those are problems that we need to tackle in order to address 
the drastically different responses that we see to forced migration. And it really is, you know, a response that is racist in nature. I've seen the responses from, you know, news outputs and sources and, you know, when it's, you know, white faces and Europeans can really empathize with people who look like them and who are them. And we saw this in the 90s with genocides. Um, we, we saw the, the responses very, very differently to genocides that were, you know, pretty much uh, one right at the other, after the other, right at the same time. Um, and so I think we have to think long-term, right? But we have to think differently about migration and forced migration. These are results, inevitable results, no, but results of failures of systems and really predictable failures of systems, right? The, the systems of colonial, um, you know, settler colonial uh, institutions and practices, they are, dependent on logic of production. They're dependent on exploitation and extraction of resources from land, exploitation of people. We really need to start asking ourselves difficult questions, right? Like how much are we willing to sacrifice in the long-term for our, and, and when I say our, I'm, I'm mostly talking about privileged classes of the world who really do still largely benefit from these systems that are operating today. Uh, how how much are we willing to sacrifice those short-term comforts that we have for the long-term consequences that we're going to all be facing together? We're at a tipping point globally. The Amazon, a place where I do a lot of work, is literally burning. And we are at a tipping point of catastrophic climate destruction of the Amazon, but that means of all of this globe. And we're already at the point of irreversible consequences for really every living being on earth, every human being, but all living things. And, you know, I'm not necessarily trying to talk apocalyptically, but maybe I am because that is um, the, the name of your show. But um, what I want to do is I want us to think about what actual changes need to happen for us at the individual level, at the community level, at institutional levels to prevent what I would say is going to be the biggest mass migration that the world has ever seen once we start to combine these conflicts that we're seeing growing over, um, over time with the crisis of climate where we're gonna see desertification and water shortages and you know issues with food. We're already starting to see these, these changes. I spend a lot of my time and effort in the human rights space and atrocity prevention space, protecting land rights of indigenous populations. You know, I don't, I don't mean to essentialize or to generalize too much about indigenous populations, but they recognize generally the relationship and the reciprocity that we have as human beings with the earth, with land, with how we need to live in order to be stewards of land and sustainably into the future, seven generations, right? So protecting, you know, earth, the water, the land, um, those are the, the things I feel we need to be protecting as, you know, globally as a species and, you know, we have to mitigate these disastrous consequences now. So I spend a lot of my time protecting those populations because they're doing that work for all of us to protect 
um, protect all of us from catastrophic climate change and, and disaster. And so for me, when you say like, you know, what, how do we need to think about migration and, and forced migration? Well, we need to think about it as a, an actual outcome of the systems we have in place that include capitalism in its late stages, that include settler colonialism that we still see throughout the, the world. And we need to really understand how do we upset or disrupt those systems so that we don't see these mass migration uh, movements. Um, that's that's the way really to, to solve this issue. And I don't know if we're ready for it. I guess we have to be. Josephine, according to historian and author Yuval Noah Harari, humanity's greatest political achievement has been the decline of war, which is now in jeopardy. So, uh, going back to history and human nature, do you believe in change, or you think history repeats itself endlessly? Well, I'm an eternal optimist, so I do believe that change is possible. Um, when you say decline in war though, I'm not so sure, right? I, I do think we have a decline in outright conquest by illegal violent means. So in that sense, right, we're not declaring war like we were uh, you know, in, in previous centuries, um, but war has changed its face, right? We have internal conflicts at scales we really haven't seen in, in recent history. And, and we have a lot of minority populations who although they're in so-called peaceful countries, they really are experiencing violence on like a massive scale. Um, the, the, the individuals and communities I work with in the Amazon are being shot at on riverbanks by military, by illegal mining companies, by, uh, you know, a lot of different forces all acting um, to sustain this uh this project of colonial uh, violence. And, you know, history does repeat itself when we don't honor it, when we don't learn from its lessons, when we choose to forget it, history repeats itself, when we don't reconcile with violent pasts. And I'm speaking from the United States, whose birth was in the twin atrocities of genocide and slavery against both Native Americans and African Americans, right? So, uh, we in the U.S. have a violent atrocity past that we have not reconciled with. And, you know, when we don't reconcile with the past, when we don't think about how do we repair for the violent harms that have been caused against populations and groups of people, we are going to have to uh, risk future conflict and violence because in atrocity prevention, we do know that one of the biggest risk factors for future atrocity is having experienced past atrocity. And when you don't address it, the 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 strands, the you know, the historical links from the past to the the present will come back. And so those who say that past is in the past, we should you know leave the past in the past. Those are the people I would worry are actually benefiting from the status quo. They're probably those who have to give up some power and privilege to make space, right? For those who have been wronged, for those who do need reparations, restorative justice in some way to move forward together in a peaceful, prosperous future. And um, so I would definitely say that I have optimism that there can be change and that there can be peace. Otherwise I wouldn't be doing this work. 
I would probably be doing <laughs> something very different. Um, but I also do think we do need to learn from our past, address our past, speak truth to history, not just power, but history as well, right? I mean, critical race theory, as a very wise friend recently told me, critical race theory is actually just speaking truth to our history and being real about what has happened in the past and not creating false narratives because those false narratives end up being house of cards that we're all standing on that eventually could collapse. And it harms all of us to be in these systems that perpetuate violence. We all need to stand up. We all need to think about how we can you know, move forward together. It's the only way we can move forward. And it's the, really the only way I see um, as the best way forward for peace. On this powerful note, we will have to end our interview. Thank you so much, Jocelyn, for sharing your inspiring thoughts and knowledge with us. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for, you know, what, all the work that you're doing to promote peace and these kinds of discussions across the globe. 